Jerusalem and cried to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on Zion to a high mountain. Go up on high. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from the bucket. And are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not be sufficient for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name and by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not heard? Have you not known? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Father, we come before you today. We give you thanks for your word, which is true, which indeed sanctifies us. We come before you. We come before your word. And we ask that you would indeed sanctify us this morning, that you would use your word to strengthen us again, convict us in areas where we need to be convicted. Remind us of the things that we already know and that we ought to know. Encourage us together that we might have the same mind as we think through what it means to wait on you. And help us, Lord, to do that for your honor and glory. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in this text, we'll see three things that we need to remember as we wait on the Lord for his strength in the midst of trial. Isaiah exhorts us to remember in the midst of trial that God does see us in our trials. That God is sovereign over all things. And that God will supply strength. God does see us, he is sovereign, and he will supply the strength that we need. Now, I'll give you some brief comments on the background and context before we proceed. Isaiah was written by Isaiah. Um, That should be pretty straightforward to some people. It's not so straightforward, but it was written by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied during the reigns of four of the kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The duration of Isaiah's prophetic ministry saw a steady drifting of the nation away from dependence on the Lord to dependence on themselves and even dependence on some of the nations around them whenever they felt threatened. Isaiah, as many of the prophets, often walked the line between preaching messages of judgment and messages of comfort. God was constantly sending messages of judgment to remind the people that he is their God and there is no other. Moreover, that fidelity to his covenant with them or exile from the promised land were the only two options. Yet there were also a number of messages of hope. These were exhortations to trust in him and not in men, to look to him for salvation, to look to him for comfort. The final prophetic word of chapter 39 was a clear indication that due to their their sin, their lack of fidelity to his covenant with them, the people were due for exile. They were headed for judgment. Chapter 40 marks kind of a turning point in the book from what was a straightforward narrative discourse between Isaiah and then King Hezekiah to a number of prophetic messages of comfort for the people. Some have said that this is Isaiah addressing the people of his day in the midst of impending judgment and turmoil of war with surrounding nations. Others say that he is prophetically addressing the concerns of the nation in the future as they're carried off into Babylonian captivity. Regardless, the point is the same. Isaiah is delivering a message of comfort to the people in the midst of great trial and distress. He is calling upon them to remember their God and to wait on him for salvation. There's much that we can learn as we peek in on the words of the prophet. Much for us to be reminded of as we're often led to wait on the Lord in the midst of our trials. Well, let's look at our first point together. We're going to look at verses 25 through 27. Look at the text again. Again, we'll learn to wait on the Lord by remembering that God is the God who sees. Verses 25 through 27. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. 
He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? At the heart of just about every inquiry that comes from the lips of someone in the midst of a great trial, some great turning point in their lives where they're made to experience a new normal thereafter, at the heart of just about every cry is the basic question, why? Why this? Why now? Why me? Those who are without any knowledge of God in this world will automatically turn to some explanations of bad luck or unaligned stars or even though they lack the worldview category of absolute good, they will point to some form of evil as the culprit, right? Some evil person who did this to them. So some evil invention, some evil influence that worked its way into their lives to cause them to do something foolishness that brought on their own undoing or else some evil influence in the life of someone else whose transgression is now affecting them. They will often use the fact of evil as proof that God does not exist. Certainly you can't have a good God if there's evil in the world, right? Because a good God would squash evil. But they fail to realize that they actually prove the existence of an ultimate good by the admission of evil. You can't have any evil that is actually evil without a standard of good to compare it to. Right? At any rate, those of us who know the Lord understand that he does at times have his purposes in our suffering. But the question still remains, why this kind of suffering? Why now? Why me? I think that deep in our hearts we know that even if we knew the reason why, it wouldn't satisfy. Because often what we're really communicating when we ask the question why is that we don't believe that this tragic thing should ever have happened to me. I don't deserve this. I'm better than this. Perhaps somehow God is mistaken. Clearly he doesn't really know me. or Perhaps he's simply forgotten me or overlooked me, just like everyone else who seems to overlook me. Well, this is the issue that Isaiah is addressing in these verses. Look at the text again. I want you to look at verse 27, then we'll look back at 25 and 26. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? What do they say? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Do you hear the complaint? My way is hidden from the Lord. As I said, this is in the context of trial, trouble, distress. God doesn't see me. Since this is written in Hebrew poetry, as I've shared before, the two lines are taken together and they help us to understand together what's being said. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. The term right there has to do with judgment. Imagine a courtroom setting. The cases have been argued. The verdict is set to be given by the judge. The judgment is set to be given by the judge. That is the binding judgment that will happen as a result of the courtroom hearing. In this case, the people are accusing God of disregarding proper judgment, right judgment, favorable judgment to their case. Clearly, my way is hidden from him because if it were not, justice would have been brought already. What is due me, my proper right, the proper judgment concerning my case would have already been exercised if the Lord had known my way, if he had seen me. He would have acted favorably to me. Now, we may not actually say this with our lips, but that's often how we feel. How could he let this happen to me? Why is it not fixed yet? We may be convinced that prayer is our only recourse. Prayer 
for his intervening hand. But when we pray, what we pray is often for God just to fix it now because I shouldn't have to go through this. If he really knew what was going on with me, certainly you would know that this is just not right for me. And we have those really bad days sometimes. Those bad days as we go through marital problems, some other family relationship issues. Those bad days that we have as we deal with the loss of a job. Those really tough days that we have when we're sick or deathly ill, laid up in a hospital bed. Those chronic ailments that we have, the knee, the back. It's the back for me. The shoulder, the migraines, the constant doctor appointments, the medicines with their side effects. You have to take another medicine because of a side effect from the one you took before. The constant doctor's appointments, a loss of a loved one. That's something you can't undo. You can't just fix that. On those bad days, we ask again, why this? Why now? Why me? We have those bad days and sometimes no one else notices. No one else seems to care. And even if they did care, there's probably not anything they could do about it. Yeah, we've prayed, but the pain is still there. What is Isaiah's response again? Well, his response is to remind the people that our God is the God who sees. Now look back at the text, verses 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. I'm going to use my Holy Ghost imagination here, tweak the words just a little bit. How can you say, O Jacob, how do you speak, O Israel? That my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. You see what he does there? I wish I had time to develop this part of it a little bit more when he says, to whom do you compare to me? That's a repeated refrain of the Lord. The Lord is constantly challenging the people on this level. Who will you compare with me? I am God and there is no other. I am the Holy One. That speaks of his uniqueness, his otherness, his separateness. There is truly no one like him. In all of creation. Now listen to his boast. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these. He's talking about the stars in the sky, right? He's talking about the heavens. Has anyone ever been able to count all the stars in the sky? Has anyone ever cataloged them by name? Does anyone even have the remote ability to uphold them by their power? To keep those brilliantly shining balls of burning gas continually blazing day by day, month by month, year by year. No one but the Lord our God. Isaiah is reasoning here from what is greater to what is less. If God is able to create, to name, and to sustain each and every one of those stars in the created cosmos, then certainly he's able to see you. Certainly he knows you by name. Certainly, he's able to sustain and uphold you. God has been known as the God who sees for many generations. One of the clearest illustrations of this is from the life of Abraham. Abraham was commanded in Genesis 22 to take the child of promise, the child of his deepest love, Isaac, up to a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to God. As they were walking, Isaac is looking around and he sees the wood and he sees the fire. He says, Father, we have wood and fire, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said to him, God will see to it. The Lord will provide. 
And after, the Lord did provide a substitutionary sacrifice for his son, a ram that was caught in a thicket nearby. Abraham named that place, literally, again, the Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. We have a similar expression when we see that something needs to be done, and we say, I'll see to it, meaning I'll take care of this or that, whatever it might be. I see the problem. I'm able to take care of the problem, and I'm committed to doing so. I see it not in a passive, unconcerned sense, but I see it, and I will take care of it. This is our God. He is the God who sees. He is the God who provides. Back in our text, Isaiah's words are almost incredulous. You see all of these things in the sky. You see that God is the one who upholds these things in the sky. How can you say, O Jacob and O Israel, that my way is hidden from God? How can you say that? Lift up your eyes and consider. This truth is what Israel needs to be reminded of, and this truth is what we still often need to be reminded of in the midst of our great difficulties as we're waiting on the Lord for his help. That the God who sees and cares for the stars of the sky, yes, all of creation, certainly sees and cares for you. Does not matter how you feel, know that this is true. God is the God who sees, and he will provide. Are you laboring in prayer for his strength? For some resolution to some great distress? God sees, he will see to it. Keep on pressing on. Keep persevering. God will take care of it. He will take care of you. Again, in the midst of our trials, as we are praying for strength, we must remember that God is the God who sees and thus will provide. That leads us to our next point. Not only is he the God who sees, but we're reminded that he sees all because he's sovereign over all. This point you can either call his sovereignty or his superiority. Either way works. They both start with an S, so I'm happy with that. Look again at verse 28 and 29 in the text. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Now, you know how you're in the middle of a fierce debate with someone and they just made a really good point and they know they made a really good point and you know they made a really good point, but they don't let up. They just keep going at you. This is what Isaiah is doing here because he just made a really good point, but he's going to keep keep at it. He's going to keep drilling into them so that they really understand what's going on here. He's not letting up because he's identified part of the issue. And a large part of the issue for Israel in their day and for us in our day is that sometimes we just forget who God is. In the midst of our trial, in the midst of our weariness, as we endeavor to reach out to the Lord in prayer for an issue that we're facing, and we don't seem to hear anything or see any positive movement or answers to our prayers and our distress, we just forget who we're praying to and we begin to grumble. Again, listen to Isaiah's response. Have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, where have you been all this time? Have you been hiding under a rock? How do you not know this? Let me tell you. Let me remind you of the truth of who God is. And he gives them four aspects of the character of God to think on. 
The first is that God is everlasting. In the text, Isaiah calls him the Lord, the everlasting God. This is another great theme to study in the book of Isaiah. Even throughout all of scripture, God makes bold statements, such as in chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. What does he say? I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. It would be utter foolishness for anyone to claim this for themselves if it were not true, but it is. The people of God have confessed this for generations. Moses in Psalm 90 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Listen, if God is everlasting, then first of all, he's seen it all. Right. There's certainly nothing new under the sun for him. And he's hindered by nothing. There's nothing, no thing, no issue too great for him to handle. Nothing has thwarted him yet. Nothing ever will. He's the everlasting God. God is also creator. Nothing comes from nothing, right? Something had to be here in the beginning in order for anything to be here now. That something is the everlasting God. He is the uncaused cause. He is the one through whom all things came into being. Look back up at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in balance? We sing that song, a favorite in our home. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Who has. What does it say? Held the oceans in his hand. Who has measured every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at your voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Why? Because he is our creator God. He knows us intimately and thoroughly because he made us. And because he made us, he knows, listen, he knows precisely what we need. He knows when we need it. And he knows for how long we need it. And that includes our trials. Truth be told, it's much easier to accept the sovereign control of God over our lives when things are going well than when things are going terribly. It is much easier to rejoice in our God when we're experiencing the good things that come from above than when we're experiencing, as Job said, the adversity from his hand. We mentioned Job earlier in our scripture reading from James, but in Job 2.10, when his wife tempts him to curse God and die for the adversity, Job says, shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? And I say to you, shall we? Shall we in one breath sing, oh, worship the king, all glorious above, and gratefully sing in his wonderful love when we're enthralled in worship, and then turn around in another breath to accuse the same God of overlooking us in our trials? Shall we accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? Would it make sense for a clay to say to a potter, why have you made me this way? For a painting to say to its artist, why did you lay the stroke this way? Would it make sense for a Turkish rug to say to its weaver, why are you using that color? I visited Turkey a number of years ago, and we went to a factory where they were making Turkish rugs, and we were able to see some of the ladies who were working on these rugs, and it literally takes them years, like tens of tens of years. I don't know if that's the right way to say it or not. Decades to make some of these rugs because they're literally hand-stitching. 
the fabric. That's why they can be so expensive, these Turkish rugs. I don't have one because it's too expensive, but they're wonderful. They look nice, right? But people are literally hand-weaving these rugs. And while you're watching one of these things being produced, you don't have any idea what it's going to look like, right? You don't have any idea why they're choosing the colors they're choosing, but the weaver knows. The weaver knows what it's going to look like. The weaver knows which thread to use when. Holy Spirit, through Isaiah, is reminding his people and us in turn that the creator God is that weaver. He is the creator of the ends of the earth and everything in between, including us, us in his wisdom with utmost care. Though we do not see the end from the beginning, we trust that he does. We trust that he is weaving the tapestry of our lives for his glory and our ultimate good. It will not always feel good in the moment, but that's never promised. What is promised that is that in the end, it will be good. Romans chapter 8, right? God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. God will do it for your good. Back to our text again. He's the everlasting God. He's the creator, and he is all wise. Isaiah says he does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What does he mean here? Again, Isaiah is encouraging his people to reflect upon what they know about the character of God. And this reflection is intended to give them encouragement as they wait on him. This is, again, a poetic line. The second half informs the first. The emphasis is on his understanding. He does not grow faint or weary. In what way? His understanding is unsearchable. The focus is on the understanding of God, the depth of his knowledge, his ability to perceive the end from the beginning, his ability to know what needs to be done in this situation or that. The people have accused God, at least in their minds, of not knowing what was due to them. Remember that that word used early in verse 27, my right is disregarded by my God. The term right emphasized proper judgment, favorable judgment, equitable judgment on their behalf. Here, Isaiah says plainly that God has not missed the mark. God has not overlooked proper judgment. God has certainly viewed your case correctly. He sees you. He knows you. He knows precisely what you need, when you need it, because his understanding is unsearchable. Unsearchable needs no explanation, right? And you know when a preacher says that something doesn't need explanation, they're going to explain it anyway. (laughs) If you're searching something out, if you're looking into something, a bag... Purse, for example, sometimes my wife asks me to look for something in her purse, and I just hand her the whole thing. Because <laughs> I really don't, I don't think I'd be able to do it. Um, and she usually finds it in seconds. It'd probably take me an hour. But when you search out something, you're trying to discover its contents, usually because you're looking for something in particular. In this case, the understanding of God is unsearchable meaning it cannot be found out. There is no limit to it. There is no bottom to it. There are no sides to it. There is no end to his understanding. To the point of this passage, his understanding has not failed, will not fail, has not worn out. The fact that we are in distress at this moment does not mean that he has grown tired of executing sound judgment for us. Our God is all wise. He will never tire from that. That means that in the midst of our trials, as we're praying for grace to help in those times when we feel as though God is not answering in the way that we want, when we feel as though perhaps he's abandoned us, we must fall back on what we know to be true. And that is that our God is all wise. And that whatever he's brought about in our lives is according to his infinite wisdom, according to his eternal purposes, 
And that is a good thing. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Ephesians 1.11, Paul says that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. This is truth. God is all wise. All of what he does is done in wisdom, in accord with his purposes. His purposes that shall come to pass again for his glory and our good. Oh, God is everlasting. He is creator. He is all wise. And fourth, he is gracious. God is gracious. He is benevolent. Look at verse 29. This is also describing something about God. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. This is something that God does as a result of who he is. God gives, and he gives to those who are in desperate need, and in this case, the desperate need is for strength. Grace and compassion often go together. Compassion sees someone in need, has pity on them, and grace kicks in to freely provide for their need. And I believe that Pastor Chris mentioned this in recent weeks, but in Exodus 34, Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. And God tells Moses to go up on a mountain. He hides him in the cleft of a rock, and he allows all of his glory to pass before him. And you remember what he says of himself? The Lord, the, Lord, a God, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is what he said concerning himself. He is a God merciful and gracious. This is the God who has been in the minds of the people of God throughout all history. Second Chronicles 30, verse 9, Nehemiah 9, 17 and 31, Psalm 103, a number of different times in the psalm, Joel 2, in the book of Jonah. That was the basis for the book of Jonah. The reason why Jonah was sent to this pagan nation is because God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God is gracious. This is a truth that we must hold on to, especially in times of trouble. The fact of the graciousness of God that he's able and willing to give help to those who are weak should be evident to all of us who know him. Again, we reason from what is greater in difficulty to what is less. In just a few chapters, in chapters 52 and 53, Isaiah will speak of another gift that God gives. He will speak of the gift of the suffering servant. This gift, this servant, this man will be given in order to see that the greatest need of his people is satisfied And the greatest need of his people is that their transgressions, their iniquities be healed. That their waywardness as sheep who have gone astray from the good shepherd be pardoned. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, identifies his suffering servant as our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bore our sins in his body on the cross and by whose wounds we are now healed. He said that we were continually straying like sheep, but now, as a result of the gift of the suffering servant, We have returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. If God has so met this great need, this greater need, the need for our forgiveness, for our pardon, the need to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, what other need would he withhold from us? What other mercy, what other grace would he not give us? In the midst of your trial, in the midst of your pain, as you cry out to the Lord for mercy to help, as you cry out to him in your weakness, wait on him, trust in him. He is the everlasting God. He is our creator who's intimately acquainted with all of our ways, 
especially all of our needs. He is the all wise God who under, whose understanding and ability to judge rightly is based on the standard of his will, not the fickleness of our needs, our felt needs. And that's far better. And he is a gracious God who's already proven his love, his desire to show forth compassion and to give his best to meet our greatest need. You know that all these things are true, whether you feel it or not. Trust in him. Wait on him. Again, we read from James this morning from our scripture reading. We do need the perseverance of Job, do we not? All of us who have gone through great trials, great distresses in our lives or will yet. I mean, I could stand here and list all of my grievances All the times when I felt as if my right was disregarded by God, I bet any one of us could do the same. I'm sure we could we could stand up here and list a number of those things for some those grievances, those pains still linger. Again, for some, those pains are the new normals in life. Often those things continually nag at us. And again, we're tempted to ask why this? Why now? Why me? It's in those times that we need these reminders. At least I know I do. We need to be reminded of the greatness of God, that he is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the all-wise God, a giving, gracious God, that that is who he is, and that will never change. We all need to be humbled before God as he answers from the whirlwind, as he did with Job in Job 38. The Lord answers from a whirlwind, and he says, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel without knowledge? How's that for rebuke, right? Job is kind of going on and on, pleading his case with his friends. And his friends are going on and on. They're saying a lot of things that, that don't really make a whole lot of sense. But God shows up and he says, you know what, Job? You're darkening counsel without knowledge. You don't really know. You don't really understand me. Let me tell you. Let me put things in order for you. And Job's response to all of the things that God says, behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth once I've spoken and I will not answer. Even twice I will add nothing more. He came face to face with the greatness of God in the midst of his distress and bitter complaint and was silenced. At the end, he says, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He repeats God's words. Who hides counsel without knowledge? Then he says, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard about you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. God said, I am the everlasting God. I am God almighty. You weren't there in the beginning when I laid the foundation of the earth. You know nothing that I know. You know nothing of my power. You know nothing of my wisdom. And Job was silenced before God. You know how you get the patience of Job. You get the patience of Job by going through the fires of Job. And as you go through the fires of Job, being reminded of the greatness of God to the point of our passage in Isaiah... That the same great God, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the all wise God, the gracious God walks with you, even in the midst of your complaint. He walks with you and he gives you strength to endure. He gives you strength because that's what he does. He gives strength to the weary. Ask for it, beg for it. Do not let him go until he gives you the strength that you need. God sees. God is sovereign. For our last point, which is really an expansion of that last phrase that we just looked at, as we wait, we must remember that God will supply. God will supply. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. 
They shall walk and not faint. In verse 30, Isaiah starts with a negative first. This way will not work, guys. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, this idea of the youth and the vigorous young men is meant to envision the strength of a society. It's not because the youth or the young men were the most important in any society, but that they were literally probably the most strongest. They were the ones who would have been selected to go into battle to fight for the people. And yet even these suffer weakness. Even these grow tired. Even these eventually stumble. You will not find the answer to your problem by relying on the strength of men. That was literally the source of so many issues that the people of Isaiah's day were experiencing. Trusting in their financial prosperity. Trusting in military strength or political tactics. Trusting in building alliances with surrounding nations to see that their future was secure. All of these things instead of trusting in the Lord. Now this part of the message doesn't apply to us on a national level, but it does apply generally as we at times try to lean in our own strength, our own understanding of life, and perhaps as we lean on the wisdom from others instead of wisdom from the Lord in the midst of our trials. This would be akin to taking time to pray once for an issue, to pray once for strength, not hearing or experiencing strength from the Lord, and as a result, giving up and deciding to manage as best you can. This would be akin to listening to the counsel of an unbeliever. Again, after we've attempted to pray and do things God's way, but it doesn't seem to help, we go run off to our best friend who we grew up with, and they tell us something, and we try to do that. We all should know by now that God doesn't wait on us. Sometimes we pray for something in a trial. We feel as though God should respond right away to us and jump in and help because it's us, and we're asking, right? I mean, how many times do you get irritated when you text somebody and they don't respond? And you know they usually walk around with their phone on them, right? And you know they're probably at that moment looking at their phone and you text them, but they ignore it. That's what you're thinking at least. But we want that instant response. We send someone an email, we want that instant response. It used to be that you had to, what, like take out a piece of paper with a pen or a pencil and write a note to someone. And you had to mail it. You had to wait for the mail to get to them. You had to wait for them to get it out of the mail, open it, read it, respond to it, write back, and send it back to you. All that time we used to have to wait, and we were okay with that. The world still continued. Well, you have to try to call them, and maybe they're home, maybe they're not. Maybe you put it on the voicemail. Maybe they check their voicemail. Maybe they don't. Then you have to wait for them to respond. But now we get frustrated because we send these instant messages, and no one responds right away. We've accustomed ourselves to that, right? To that instant gratification. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't wait on us in that way. We wait on him. That's what we see in our text. They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. What does it mean to wait on him? Isaiah is clearly making a contrast, right? There are those who do not trust in the Lord and thus complain about the Lord's sense of justice, those who doubt his ability to help, those who perhaps turn to mankind for strength instead of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord then involves first seeing your need, trusting that he sees and understands your need, seeing and trusting his ability to meet that need, his unique ability as a sovereign God, and then seeking him for strength. It is looking to him, hoping in him, seeking his face for strength, deliberately, wholeheartedly, persistently seeking the sovereign, gracious God for strength. That's what it means to wait on him. Jesus said to his disciples about prayer, ask, seek, and knock. We know that he meant to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking until you hear the answer. 
I've said this many times before, but it's really only believers who are the true seekers. A.W. Tozer lamented that in our day, we're constantly having our seeking done for us. And what he meant by that is that all we ever hear about salvation is that you just need to trust God. You just need to believe in Jesus and you have to do nothing else. But that's not the picture of biblical Christianity. The picture of biblical Christianity is a seeking faith. We seek out the Lord, our God. We pursue the Lord, our God, by faith. We keep running hard after him until the end. Isaiah doesn't really tell us what that seeking looks like, what that waiting looks like, but we have to use our imaginations to apply this. How do you and I wait on the Lord? What does that actually practically look like? How do we seek the Lord in the midst of our trials? I just mentioned three things. First, read. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates in his law day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the streams of water, whose leaf does not wither, who brings forth his fruit in his season, and whatever he does, he prospers. Now, taking that imagery of the tree, that tree still goes through all the different seasons, right? That tree still experiences the winter, the cold of winter, still experiences the heat of summer, but that tree always bears fruit in its season. That tree's leaf never withers. Fruitfulness and endurance is what we get as a result of abiding in the word of God. Read. Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 26, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him. Keep your mind on him. Philippians 4, 6 through 8, especially verse 8. Think on what is true. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, whatever. And it goes on from there. Think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. We need to stay connected to God through his word. We need to have our minds renewed by his word. Keeping our minds stayed on him is a, a, a means of seeking after him, especially in the midst of trial. Read. Also, pray. Again, I already mentioned Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul says, be anxious for nothing but in everything, pray. Now, all of this is in the context of prayer, right? We're praying for strength, but we don't seem to see it right away. So what do we do? Do you stop? No. You keep praying. You keep laboring in prayer. I love the picture of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord in Genesis. That is the ultimate picture of prayer for me. The angel of the Lord says, morning is coming. It's time for me to go. Jacob says, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. He wrestles with God and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. That ought to be us in prayer, especially in times of distress. Do not let him go until he blesses. Read, pray, gather. It's probably one of the things that suffers the most when we're feeling the worst. We don't want to be around others. We suspect perhaps they won't understand how we feel and thus won't be able to help. But God has designed the body of Christ in such a way that we're necessary for one another. Ephesians chapter 4, true spiritual growth is not going to happen apart from the body of Christ. As we gather together, we use our gifts with one another, then we're all built up together in the body of Christ. God has gifted us that way. He's, he's designed the body to work that way. That's why we gather, to, gather together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, we're commanded to gather together, not to forsake our assembling together. I'll give you one more thought with this. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul refers to God as the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says that God is the one who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's in 2 Corinthians 1. What does that mean? That means that God provides comfort to his people in trial. His people are then empowered to give comfort to one another, even if they're going through a different kind of trial. The comfort that God has given them is effective in bringing comfort to others. So while you're thinking, I could go, but they're not really going to be able to help, you're actually cutting off a means of comfort that God has provided from another believer who's been comforted by God. And that was just three. If you need a fourth, repeat. Read, pray, gather. Back to our text again. Isaiah doesn't explain exactly what it means to wait on the Lord. We use our imagination for that, but he does tell us the result. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will thrive in the midst of their trials. Again, this doesn't mean that the trial will go away. It doesn't mean that they will love the trial or the difficulty of it. It does suggest that the strength provided will be an inner strength that enables them to rise out of despair to see the goodness of the Lord. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not faint. I take these together to mean that they will gain endurance to the end of their trial. They will not tire or have to stop halfway through. Neither will they faint under the pressure of the trial, but they will endure. These are the results of waiting. These are the promises for those who wait. They who wait on the Lord. They who seek his face. They who pursue him and do not fall away when things are difficult will renew their strength. They will gain new strength from the hand of our gracious God who gives strength to the weary. Do you believe this? People shy away from absolutes these days. They shy away from making claims of truth. This is truth, believer. God will give you strength in your trial. One of my pastors years ago used to comment that we're all either on our way into a trial, in the midst of a trial, or on our way out of a trial. It's a kind of how life works on this side of eternity. I will say that there's no one greater to walk with and to wait upon wherever you are in the process of trials than the Lord our God, the God who sees, the God who is sovereign, and the God who has promised to supply all of our needs. This is a truth that we offer to the world. This is a seed of the gospel for those who are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, without God and without hope in the world. Those who, as I mentioned earlier, are quick to point out evil but slow to understand that there's only evil because there is a good We invite others to behold the good. We invite them to behold our great God, the one who has in his goodness met our greatest need, the need for salvation, raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life in Jesus Christ, a new life, a redeemed life, a life of confidence that on both sides of eternity, this one and the next, no matter what evils we face, that the sovereign almighty God is with us and he is for us. Amen. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true. Thank you that indeed you do sanctify us by your truth. Thank you for the reminders in Isaiah that we ought to wait on you, that we ought to trust in you, that you are trustworthy because you are the everlasting God. You are a great God. You are the sovereign God. You are a giving God. You are a generous God. You have met our greatest need in Christ. And so we can trust you to meet every other need that we have today. Any cry, any prayer for help, you do hear, and you will provide for because you are good. Help us to remember this as we persist. Help us to rejoice in the salvation that you've wrought for us today and in the salvation that you will bring to us tomorrow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.